Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Recorded live. Welcome, everyone. This is the Spiral Foundation's live talk, Evening with the Expert. This talk is being recorded and will be available on the live talk, uh, sorry, the TalkShoe website for one week. Participants may download this talk for your own use following the presentation. After that time, the talk will be available for sale on the Spiral Foundation's website, www.thespiralfoundation.org. Participants may obtain a certificate for AOTA CEUs by following the instructions in your confirmation email and taking a short test on tonight's talk. This talk is the copyrighted property of the Spiral Foundation and may not be copied or distributed without permission. Um, tonight's topic in our evidence-based practice of sensory integration series is applying evidence-based practice to AIRS sensory integration. And hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Dr. Theresa May Benson, and I'm the Executive Director of the Spiral Foundation. And I'm delighted uh, to be with you this evening to discuss evidence-based practice as it applies to AIRS sensory integration. So, um, uh, yes, I have started. Um, there we go. So. Um, a couple of things in case you uh, had not uh, gotten the messages. Um, please feel free to type in the chat window uh, and ask questions throughout the call. Um, I'll answer questions as the timing um, seems appropriate. Uh, people who are on the phone only, I've muted you and I will uh, I will uh, unmute the phone um, at the end of the call to uh, take voice questions if uh, you are only calling in uh, via the phone. All right. Um, the other thing, as I mentioned, is the references that I'm going to be citing um, in today's call are on the home page for this call on TalkShoe uh, in the um, comment box uh, that is at the bottom of the screen. And you can just copy and paste that information into a Word document. All right. So uh, to begin our talk, let's uh, go over a little bit what I'm going to cover tonight. I want to introduce participants to the core concepts of evidence-based practice and describe how those concepts are applied to clinical practice utilizing AIRS sensory integration theory, assessment, and intervention. And I'll present you then also um, with some of the current research utilized in evidence-based practice in this area. All right, so to begin, uh, let's start off with this whole idea of evidence-based practice. As many of you are aware, this is uh, quite the hot topic. All right, it's a, a very popular concept. And um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't really understand what evidence-based practice means. Um, this um, practice began in the late 1990s in medicine. Uh, at that point in time, there was a huge uh, influx of medical information. And trying to keep physicians um, up uh, and... Um, Okay. All right. Can you hear me now? Have a little problem with the phone. Okay. Thank you, Lori. Um, okay. So this whole concept, um, thank you. Uh, this whole concept 
of um, evidence-based practice uh, started with medicine when there was too much information um, for physicians to keep track of. And so the medical care was changing rapidly and trying to find a way for physicians to have um, keep up with the, the literature and to keep up with best practices um, was very challenging. And so um, a gentleman by the name of Strauss uh, came up with this concept of evidence-based practice. And since then, this concept has uh, expanded into all other areas of healthcare. And as many of you are aware, particularly now, um, becoming uh, important in occupational therapy. So let's talk first of all about what is evidence-based practice. So by definition, um, Strauss, Richardson, Glasiau, and Haynes in 2005 wrote a book called Evidence-Based Practice, and they defined it as the integration of the best research evidence with our clinical expertise and our patients' unique values and circumstances. So this is one of the first things I want to get across to people, is that evidence-based practice doesn't just mean blindly uh, looking at research, all right, because not all research is all that great, and in many things that we do, there may not be sufficient research. Um, yes, the best research evidence uh, that we might have on a given topic is important to know, but your clinical expertise is also important. All right, you, many of you have uh, probably been practicing for years, and as a result, you have a lot of expertise in your practice area, and that's valuable information as well. And in addition to that, we have to take into account the um, needs and values and desires of our clients. So um, it may be that our clients want a service that maybe we're not quite so sure about. But if that's something that they really, really want, then that's something we might need to consider um, providing them. Now, when we're practicing evidence-based practice, what does this mean? What this means is that you're going to use these three sources of evidence to evaluate and assess various aspects of practice so that you can have the best information available at this point in time. Now, another thing that a lot of people are not um, aware of is that evidence-based practice does not just refer to intervention. Um, that's usually the big thing everybody wants to be looking at. But evidence-based practice involves a number of key areas of practice. And it's important to uh, engage in evidence-based practice across these areas of practice. So these areas include understanding the etiology of a problem. What's the foundation of a particular difficulty? Um, how does it clinically manifest? How does a dysfunction clinically manifest? Um, what are the characteristics of the individuals? Um, how can we um, do differential diagnosis? Um, in sensory integration, for instance, we've had a lot of uh, information recently on etiology. Um, we've been learning more about the fact that individuals with um, sensory processing problems have uh, differences in their uh, mini columns, in their white matter, in the cortex. Um, manifestation of dysfunction, especially in the area of autism, this has been a pretty hot topic. Uh, what types of sensory processing problems do these individuals have? And how might they uh, differ from individuals who are just uh, having sensory processing issues? Um, differential diagnosis. Um, can we identify whether something is just a sensory integration problem? Um, what's the impact of trauma on the sensory integration issue? If is what we're seeing a manifestation of the trauma and anxiety, or is it a manifestation of the um, sensory integration problems? Another key area of practice is being able to select and interpret uh, tests and assessments. 
um, which measures uh, are the best for diagnosis and which are the best for um, following uh, and change and documenting change. And this is a big uh, area of concern for uh, our intervention research. Okay. Um, prognosis is an area that, uh, unfortunately, we have not really looked at a lot in sensory integration. And this really has to do with if I do this amount of service or I provide this kind of service, then what is the likely out outcome? Uh, and in prognosis, it's one of the first things we often ask a doctor uh, when you get a diagnosis. Oh, you, you've diagnosed me with uh, cancer. So how long do I have? What does that mean? And um, in sensory integration, this is an area that we have not uh, empirically examined uh, very effectively. So it's a, it's a big area for us to look at. Uh, intervention is the next area. And that everybody's pretty familiar with. And we'll talk more about that um, in this call. Um, prevention. How can we prevent sensory integration issues? Uh, this is another area that we have not really looked at at all. And then patient experience and meaning. Um, fortunately, this is an area that we've uh, recently uh, had more information on. Um, Ellen Cohn from Boston University has written and published uh, several articles on patient experience, especially that of uh, pa uh, parents and what parents want and desire for their children's therapy services. So those are our key areas of practice. So when we're looking at engaging in evidence-based practice, we can be asking questions and getting information about any of these areas, not just intervention. And all of them are important. Now, what we want to do as we begin to engage in this process is to locate the best evidence to answer questions in those areas. And best evidence is also something that's uh, complicated. Uh, nowadays, everybody thinks that you have to have a randomized controlled trial in order to have best evidence. And for intervention studies, that can be uh, one of the best well-controlled studies. However, by engaging in a study that is so strictly controlled, it may not actually reflect clinical practice. And therefore, the generalization of some of those uh, really strict RCTs may not clinically be as useful or generalizable. So there's a lot of different uh, issues that we have. Now, the next thing we do after we locate our evidence is we have to critically appraise that evidence for the validity, its impact, and its applicability. And so as a um, practitioner of EBP, you don't, should not be just taking um, a research article that you find um, on the web or whatever straight at face value. You need to critically appraise that um, literature and look at who's doing the research, what is the quality of the research. Um, is that research, as I mentioned, so... Um, controlled that it's really lost applicability to clinical practice? Or does that uh, research resonate with your clinical experience? Then we want to integrate the uh, critical appraisal with uh, our clinical experience and our patients' values and circumstances. So we may have studies that are lower quality studies, but those uh, the findings of those studies may match up quite nicely with our clinical experience and what our clients want. And in that case, that would be an appropriate um, use of evidence-based practice, uh, even if the quality of the research is not as strong. So an example of this, uh, for instance, is uh, the literature on the Wilbarger depressure protocol is quite mixed. And for the most part, uh, there are a number of articles out looking at case studies or very small uh, sample sizes. If you're looking for very high quality uh, literature uh, and research on that particular intervention, 
then you're not going to find it. And as a result, people may say, well, that's not an appropriate intervention for us to be using. Therapists shouldn't be using it. There's no evidence that that works. Well, the evidence that is there is positive. So yes, there is evidence that it works. Um, however, it is low quality evidence. But for many of us, that low quality evidence is consistent with our own clinical practice and use of that technique and may in fact be something that parents um, need and desire and want us to engage in uh, with their child. In that case, your application of evidence-based practice would be to use, go ahead and use that technique, all right? So that brings us then to this question of why is evidence-based practice important? Um, you know, why, why do we, are we talking about this all the time? Well, first of all, it can help us really understand our clients' uh, disorders, their symptoms, um, their comorbidities, what kinds of things are associated with um, sensory integration problems. It can help us understand the relationship of problems associated with SI and occupational performance. Um, I frequently get questions. Is there any research that says um, that this issue is related to some kind of an SI problem? And so practicing EBP would be locating that evidence. Uh, it helps us select appropriate assessment tools. It helps us interpret those assessment results. Um, it helps us select and compare interventions and make informed decisions about the interventions that we're going to provide. Um, EBP can help us estimate the duration of an intervention, what the client's prognosis might be, and what's the probability of a given type of an outcome. And as I mentioned, this is an area that I think we need a lot more work on in sensory integration. And lastly then, um, evidence-based practice can help us inform a client about some particular aspect of their condition. All right. Um, for instance, uh, a family might want to know, um, is there uh, any literature on um, the color of a room and a child's sensory um, modulation problems. You know, should we select a certain color uh, to paint his bedroom? Uh, and in fact, there's a little bit of um, literature out on that. So that brings us then to this idea of um, what is the evidence-based pro um, practice process? How do you engage? and evidence-based practice. The first thing you have to do is to ask an answerable clinical question. And boy, oh boy, that is one of the hardest things, an answerable clinical question. Um, I get questions a lot that are really not answerable because they're too broad uh, or they're too specific. And so one of the things you need to be thinking about as you're um, going to engage in this process is be clear about what it is you're asking. And think about the scope of the question. Uh, for instance, if you ask, what's the literature on assessments in sensory integration? That is a huge, monstrous question. It's totally unanswerable because there's just way too much information on it. On the other hand, when you ask something like, well, is there any evidence on um, using oh, some using some uh, particular tool to improve a given uh, aspect of SI function? Might be actually too specific. All right. So finding the balance is hard. So that's the first step: is being able to um, ask that question. The second step then is to uh, search for and gather evidence. And being able to find and locate uh, the research literature is an important point. And I'm going to go over some of that with you uh, in just a moment here. The next thing we need to do is once you get the um, evidence, you need to evaluate it for quality and applicability. 
And that involves looking at whether or not that literature is really relevant. Um, you may not be able to find a study on exactly the specific question that you're looking at. For instance, maybe you're asking a question about um, whether or not an adolescent, uh, maybe whether or not there's a relationship between um, ad, uh, ad, um, one function and another in adolescence. Well, you may not find that in adolescence. Maybe there's no studies on adolescence, but you can find um, a study on that same topic in children or in adults. And so you have to decide, is that information close enough to be relevant uh, to what you're looking at? Um, secondly, we need to look at whether or not the information is trustworthy. And uh, especially in the area of SI intervention, um, there's a lot of untrustworthy uh, literature out there. Next, we want to ask whether or not that literature is generalizable. So this gets back to the issue of, has the study been done in such a way that it is so completely um, controlled or uh, implemented in a way that it really does not reflect uh, sufficiently um, clinical practice, that you feel like you really can't generalize it uh, to clinical practice. And this happens quite a bit as well. And then lastly, you need to ask, um, is that evidence clinically important? Because they might find some really cool stuff um, and find some really interesting results, but when you look at that information, you go, eh, yeah, but so what does that really mean for my client? You know, that's kind of interesting, but it may not be um, of clinical importance. Then the next thing that we want to do after we've evaluated our evidence is you have to communicate it, all right? You haven't really done the EBP process if you don't communicate it. Now, what is communication? That might be simply talking to um, a parent about the results, uh, talking to a colleague, um, maybe presenting a little talk um, at your staff meeting. Um, in the bigger picture, it might mean presenting a poster or a session at a state or federal conference. Um, or it might be writing um, a paper for publication. And then lastly, the last thing, uh, part of the EBP process is to document outcomes for future use. Um, it is important to try to find a way to uh, keep track of uh, the information that you've found so that it's there the next time you need it and you don't have to repeat uh, your work. Okay, You want to be able to access uh, all that hard work that you've done. All right. So now that we know what EBP is, that brings us then to how do we apply these concepts to AIRS sensory integration. Now, as we remember, when we talk about ASI, air sensory integration, we're talking about theory, assessment, and intervention. So let's start off and just talk a little bit about how do we apply these concepts to ASI theory. The first question is, why might you need to engage in evidence-based practice in regards to ASI theory? Well, first of all, um, and this happens a lot, parents or other professionals want information about what sensory integration is. All right? Um, and as many of us know, there's a lot of inaccurate information um, out there on the web today. And so we want to make sure that uh, our parents and other professionals that we're working with have accurate information. So when you think about um, engaging in EBP here, the first thing you want to ask is, well, what kind of theory information are they interested in? Just saying, well, I, I want some evidence on uh, ASI theory. That's huge because ASI theory in includes many different uh, components. So we want to, uh, to narrow that down. Maybe we want to ask, do you have uh, any evidence on that um, enhanced 
provision of enhanced sensory information makes changes in neuroplasticity or in brain function. All right, that would be a more precise um, kind of an answer. When you think about what kind of evidence you might use in this situation, when we're talking um, to a parent or a professional, low-level evidence might be very appropriate. Um, we might look for um, books, either lay books or textbooks, depending on the fam uh, individual. Uh, we might be looking for articles uh, that are uh, more generic, something perhaps in OT practice. Uh, we may give them information out of SI theory and practice, our, our textbook. Uh, or we may get, uh, point them to sensory integration in the child, Dr. Ayers' book, or Living Sensationally uh, by um, Winnie Dunn, or Sensational Kids by uh, Dr. Miller. And those, those levels of evidence might be sufficient to ask that, answer that question for that population. Now, another reason we might do EBP in regards to theory is they might have questions about how, how does sensory integration intervention uh, work. So as I mentioned, they might want to know, well, um, you know, is there literature that proves that if you um, give enhanced sensation that it's going to result in change? And in that case, you might be looking for research articles. Um, they may also then have specific questions about the relationship of sensory integration to some aspect of uh, a diagnosis, a behavior, or a specific kind of a problem. And in that case, um, research articles might be appropriate. So just to give you an example, um, one study that looks at this aspect is, was by Lynn et al., L-I-N, Lynn et al., 2012. And in this um, paper, it's called A Small Sample Test of the Factor Structure of Postural Movement and Bilateral Motor Integration Using Structural Equation Modeling. And that's in Perceptual and Motor Skills. Phew, that's a mouthful. But what that study does is it looks at um, the relationship between postural skills and bilateral movement skills. And what are some of the subgroupings of problems that we can see in those areas. So that might be um, a study that you would pull out if a, uh, a parent had a question about, well, you know, how do you know that these things all go together? If, you know, if you're looking at postural control and you're saying, well, low tone and decreased strength and poor prone extension supine flexion, those are all a pattern of postural difficulties. This might be an article um, that would be appropriate for them. So, as we think about how we're going to um, uh, engage in evidence-based practice in regards to theory, um, we have to just remember that ASI theory is very complex and incorporates many different components, um, especially those that are based in neuroscience. And so we need to be clear what kind of uh, information we want. So the next thing I wanted to do is to walk you through the evidence-based practice process. Um, how would you actually go about doing this uh, to answer a question related to ASI? So the first thing you're going to do is to generate a question, um, and that would be something along the order of, uh, what is the evidence for fill in the blank, okay? The next thing that you want to do then is to search for information. And where can you get information? And this is something um, a lot of people have questions about. If you're not in a university uh, setting and have access to this great library, where do you get information? Um, first and foremost, uh, one of the best places to start is AGI. Um, if you're not an AOTA member, you should be. Um, and as part of your membership, you get uh, access to AGI. And AGI, um, you now also get access to the Canadian Journal of OT and the British Journal of OT with your membership. So right there you have three journals in the profession um, that are well respected that you can get access to. Another journal is uh, OTJR, uh, the uh, Occupational Therapy Journal of Research. And uh, that's our research journal. And uh, OTJR 
can, you can access individual articles for a price, uh, or um, and you may be able to get information through your public library. Um, there's an organization called JSTOR that many libraries um, subscribe to, and JSTOR often allows you to access um, research articles. Now, the two other areas that are um, available for general, the general public, uh, and this is my go-to, is Google Scholar. And if you're not familiar with Google Scholar, you should be. Um, Google Scholar is totally free, and uh, it has access to many, 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 many articles. And um, if that article is available um, online, uh, then it gives you a link to that online article. Many of those online articles are free. Uh, some of them will take you to the publisher where you can purchase the article for a um, per article price if you really, really need it. Another place that you can go is uh, Medline or PubMed. Um, these are, are basically the same thing. They're just different ways to access it. This is a search engine. Uh, that's put out by uh, the U.S. Um, uh, Health and I want to say it's part of Health and Human Services. Um, it's um, put out by one of our, our medical areas. But um, the problem with Medline and PubMed is is that it only carries uh, and indexes journals that are very high used journals. So journals like uh, OTJR. Um, Occupational Therapy International, um, many of our OT journals, which are smaller journals, are not indexed in Medline or in PubMed. And uh, the website for that is uh, www.ncbi.nlm.nih.gov forward slash PubMed forward slash. Okay? So, now, when you're searching, um, what I want to do is take you through how the search engine that you use can impact on the results that you get, especially related to SI. So, for instance, if you um, search on uh, Google Scholar, what you're going to do is you're going to search for the term sensory integration theory. Okay. Um, and one of the very first articles uh, that comes up is an article by Aya Rochi and McDonald in 2006. And that article is Sensory Integration and the Perceptual Experience of Persons with Autism. And that's in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders. So that's actually a pretty interesting, um, probably fairly applicable article to tell you about how individuals with autism perceive um, perceptual experiences. And it gives a very nice description of sensory perception. So you might use it for that. Another article that comes up with that same search is by Fletch, um, DeAngelis, and Angelaki in 2013. And that article is on bridging the gap between theories of sensory cue integration and the physiology of multisensory neurons. And that's in the Journal of Nature Reviews Neuroscience. That's a mouthful. Um, that particular paper is a very technical neuroscience paper. Okay? Um, and that's not something that might be helpful for a client, but might be something that you as a professional would find helpful. Then the next article that comes up is uh, by Lane and Schaff uh, in 2010, and that's Examining the Neuroscience Evidence for Sensory-Driven Neuroplasticity, Implications for Sensory-Based Occupational Therapy for Children and Adolescents, and that's in AJOT. And that particular um, article is a systematic review of information um, neuroscience information specifically supporting sensory integration. So if you're looking for information on sensory integration theory, that would be exactly the kind of article that you would look for. So you can see that you get different kinds of 
responses. Now, what if we take that same search term, sensory integration theory, and we go to PubMed. And in PubMed, we indicate that we're going to sort by best match, and we're going to limit our search to the past five years so we get the most current information. And basically what ends up coming up with the search term sensory integration theory are numerous neuroscience articles. Um, there are only a couple that have anything whatsoever uh, to do to air sensory integration. Um, and there are a number of articles related uh, to multisensory integration. So you end up coming up with a great deal of information that is not applicable uh, to our particular question. And so that's just something to keep in mind uh, when you're searching here. PubMed um, and Medline might be some place that you go to as a second resort. I think you will generally get your best results through Google Scholar. All right, the next thing we want to do is to evaluate the information. Uh, we've already talked about uh, looking at what evidence is going to be the most relevant. So as we looked at these three papers that we just found, which paper is going to be the most relevant for the particular situation um, that we're interested in? Um, are we interested in a, um, information on theory related to autism? If that's the case, then the Iorochi uh, and McDonald paper is going to be best. If we're more interested in the neuroscience, then the Lane and Schaff paper will be best. Um, then we're going to communicate it, and you're going to think about how you're going to give this information uh, to the parent. Um, are you going to give them a link to the given article? Are you going to print the article out? Um, are you just simply going to summarize it to them and maybe give them an abstract? Or are you going to write out your own summary? And then lastly, in terms of documentation, and this is an important piece, is um, document in your treatment notes that you provided the family with that given information that demonstrates that you've provided parent education, which is often really important for insurance companies. And um, you also want to develop a means for storing and accessing articles, so you don't have to do them all over. And there's a lot of different ways that you can do this. Um, you can, uh, there's a, a, a little program called Mendeley, which is great for uh, storing and sorting articles. Uh, you can also use um, uh, programs OneNote, uh, which comes with Windows 10 nowadays, um, and uh, a number of other free programs that you can use um, for this. Another resource which I wanted to point out to you is ResearchGate. And um, ResearchGate is a, a website that researchers can post their articles on. And so you can go to ResearchGate and search for a given topic or, and different, or a researcher, and very often they will have copies of their pro, um, papers um, available for download. And if they don't have them, then you can um, email the author and they can send you a copy of the paper. And that can be a nice alternative to uh, paying 30 or $35 for an individual um, article. All right? So that brings us then to um, evidence-based practice and SI assessment. Um, so what kinds of questions might you ask for ASI assessment? Well, you might want to ask um, which assessments measure the construct that I want to evaluate? Um, are you looking at measuring sensory processing? Are you looking at visual motor skills, praxis? Um, are you looking for gravitational insecurity? Uh, which measures are appropriate for my particular population? Um, are you working with children, adolescents, adults, um, a particular diagnosis? And are the measures uh, reliable and valid with that given population? Uh, you may also want to ask whether or not that assessment can, can discriminate one problem from another problem. For example, can that measure um, identify attention issues from sensory modulation problems? Um, and is it sensitive enough to measure change during treatment? Uh, many assessment tools are designed uh, just for identification of problems, not for 
measuring change. And so they may not be sensitive enough to measure change. And you also want to know uh, what kind of training or background is needed in order to administer or interpret um, a given assessment. All right? So that brings us then to this uh, to intervention, which is, yay, I know what everybody's always wanting to hear about, right? Um, so what are we talking about when we're thinking about evidence-based practice in ASI uh, intervention? This is usually the most frequently asked uh, area of evidence-based practice. And right now, um, there's a big emphasis on evidence to support our interventions as a profession. So this is um, naturally something that people are quite interested in. So I've already mentioned that evidence-based practice relies on the best research evidence. And so it's really important to remember that the lack of evidence doesn't mean that an intervention is not useful or it's not effective. It just may mean that no one has done research on it. Okay? So if there's no evidence on an uh, on a particular intervention, you don't necessarily have to sit there and say, oh, I can't use that. There's no evidence on it. It just may mean nobody's done the research, okay? Um, only, the only reason we have for really not using an intervention is if there's overwhelming evidence that it absolutely does not work. And that's also something that we've seen in our clinical practice, okay? Um, now, the other thing about this is, is that there may be clinical evidence, there may be case studies on a given intervention that support uh, the particular intervention that you're looking at. And frankly, when an intervention is relatively new, the first type of research that is typically done is case study research. You tend to um, look at individual cases, then you may do some single case series, all right, which are more controlled. And then you may do pre and post groups um, for an intervention. And then finally, you may get around to a randomized controlled trial. Uh, doing research on intervention studies is very expensive to do it really well. And the rigor that's required um, for intervention studies these days is really kind of astronomical. Um, and so getting funding to do um, an intervention study can be quite challenging. Now, um, one of the things that I wanted to point out about uh, gathering information on ASI intervention, there have been a number of systematic reviews of the research in probably the last, oh, seven or eight years. And some of those have been quite well done, and others um, have not. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So one paper um, was done by myself, uh, May Benson and Kumar, in 2010. We did a systematic review of the research evidence examining the effectiveness of interventions using a sensory integration approach. And uh, that article is in um, AGI. And as part of that article, we found some positive um, outcomes. So one of the things to realize in ASI intervention, there's no evidence that ASI does not work. All right? Um, in nearly all studies conducted, ASI demonstrates positive effects in at least some of the outcome areas that were measured. Um, it may not have demonstrated positive results in all outcomes, that were evaluated, but um, almost all of them make uh, changes in some. And this has gotten into one of the big areas that we've been uh, looking at in terms of ASI intervention over the last 10 years is sensitive and meaningful outcomes. Many of the outcomes of early research in ASI were on sensory processing, post-rotary nystagmus, um, uh, gross motor skills, fine motor skills, they were not on functional outcomes. They were on much more um, those person factors um, and client factor level. And in fact, what they found was that the instruments that we're using, things like the bot, 
um, or you know, the Brunix assessment isn't sensitive enough to pick up changes over the course of um, even a couple of months of intervention. Now, um, in most of the studies that have been uh, intervention studies on ASI, ASI performed as well as other interventions, all right? And there's sort of this belief system out there around interventions that a particular intervention has to be better than another intervention. And that, when that happens, it doesn't mean that the original intervention isn't effective. It may be as effective as another intervention. It may just not be better. And that question is something you should really look at when you're evaluating um, particularly systematic reviews. The question of whether or not it is better or not doesn't speak to if that particular intervention works. It's uh, how well it works, okay? Now, what's the evidence that we do have? Well, a lot depends on what you consider to be sensory integration intervention, okay? How that intervention is implemented, et cetera, and also what level of evidence you're considering. Um, are individual studies uh, appropriate, um, or are you looking at only papers on aggregate studies like meta-analyses or systematic reviews? Um, there's been a lot of issues in the ASI literature in that um, there have been a number of people doing aggregate studies who don't really understand ASI. And one thing I want to point out is, is that the problems that we have in our ASI intervention um, are not unique to sensory integration. All right? They're pretty typical um, in other kinds of inf uh, areas as well. Psychology has the same kind of, of issues. Okay? Um, it's pretty typical in the development of research methods. Um, Okay, so what I want to start with um, in terms of some of the evidence. First thing, um, in 2007, Parham et al. identified that uh, 34 studies that identified, um, uh, that were, ah, pardon me, 34 stu individual studies were identified uh, using sensory integration intervention with children and they claimed to be, to be doing ASI. Well, when Parham et al. went and actually evaluated those studies, okay, what they ended up finding was that um, 34 of the, of most of those 34 studies, almost 60%, they reported less than half of the characteristics of SI intervention, all right? So when they, described the intervention, they did not describe the core, most of the core characteristics of ASI intervention. So right off the bat there, the question becomes, were they actually doing ASI intervention, according to Dr. Ayers, or were they doing something else? Now, in some of these studies, they were quite old, and so that could be, um, that lack of reporting could have been due to um, reporting differences in old studies or simply because the study didn't use those characteristics. We don't know. If the information's not there, you don't know what it's, um, whether or not you, you know, that information is, was done as part of the study or not. Now, um, another point when you're looking at research studies, at groups of studies, you need to look at whether or not a given research project has generated more than one article. Because oftentimes what has happened, especially in the 1980s, there were um, only a couple of studies that were actually done on AS, ASI, but what ended up happening is there were multiple research articles published on the same study. So when that happens, you can't say that there are three studies that did or didn't show something. It's actually only one study, all right? Um, and that's, that's an important component. Now, um, back to Parham et al. Um, these 34 studies, most of them did not demonstrate that 
uh, they actually used ASI. They didn't report it. And in fact, 12 of the studies, 35% of them specifically characterized, um, prescribed the sequences of the activities that the therapist was supposed to do, which is totally contradictory to ASI intervention. And one of the studies only provided sensory stimulation. Okay, so in fact, 13 out of the 34 studies directly contradicted the tenets of ASI intervention. So when you read that study, on the surface, they say, hey, we're doing sensory integration intervention. But when you see what they actually did, they actually aren't doing sensory integration intervention. Um, and that study was um, Parham, Cohn, Spitzer, and Kumar, 2007, Fidelity in Sensory Integration Intervention Research. That's in AJON. Now, the next one um, that you, gives you information is the um, systematic review that was done by myself, May Benson, and uh, Kumar on 2010. And that um, systematic review was done on articles between 1972 and 2007. And we found 27 articles uh, on individual studies and five review articles. Uh, there were two meta-analyses and three systematic reviews. And out of those 27 articles, a number of them represented multiple articles on the same research study. Now, in our review, um, all of the children had learning disabilities or sensory um, SI and motor problems. We only had two children with autism. So in our review, the population was largely our traditional um, SI population. And when we examined the quality of the studies, we found that there was a wide range of quality. Um, some of them were quite poor, and some of them were pretty good. Um, and off of, oftentimes, the quality of the study depended on how old it was. So the older studies um, were poorer because back in the 70s, and, uh, um, they didn't do the research in intervention as stringently as we do it today. Um, out of those 27 studies, surprisingly, though, 13 of them reported on level one RCT studies. Those are randomized controlled trials, the highest level of evidence on children with learning disabilities. And the outcomes there were um, positive outcomes were found in motor performance, sensory processing, academics, especially in reading, um, psychoeducational outcomes, and occupational performance. And in each case, over half of the studies examining a particular outcome area demonstrated positive results in that area. So that's actually pretty strong evidence for um, gains in those areas. Now, since 2007, um, there have been very few studies uh, that have been conducted. Uh, and frankly, most of the research in ASI the last intervention studies were largely done in the late 1980s, maybe a couple in the early 1990s. Um, there has not been a lot of intervention research done in the last 20 years. And since 2007, the last 10 years, the few studies that have been done have been conducted um, strictly on children with um, autism spectrum disorder. So that right there, um, becomes a little bit challenging, that if you're looking for the most recent, probably the most well-designed studies, those are going to be on children with autism, not with our tr uh, traditional um, population of um, children uh, with learning disabilities. So um, right now, AOTA is in the process of conducting an evidence-based practice uh, review of a number of different areas related to air sensory integration intervention. And I and Roseanne Schaff are completing the um, systematic review on ASI intervention. And that study, um, that, that systematic review is looking at articles from 2007 to current, okay? So we only found five articles 
which appeared to examine specifically ASI intervention. Okay, um, and out of those studies, we ended up um, finding one by uh, Roseanne Schaff, which was a randomized controlled trial uh, on children with autism. Uh, Beth Pfeiffer also did a randomized controlled trial on children with autism. Um, an author uh, by the name of Priest, P-R-E-I-S, and McKenna uh, did a smaller study. Uh, they did were looking at speech and language in um, individual children that was single case studies. Dunbar did a small study in preschool children looking at, with, uh, uh, looking at um, a sensory-based classroom versus direct SI. And Iwanaga uh, did a study that was a retrospective record review comparing children with autism who received ASI and those that received just a uh, group therapy, gross motor group therapy group. All right, so five studies um, that are current, and all of them uh, have been done on children with autism. Now, in addition to the ones that we found, uh, there are, have been a number of studies, uh, especially systematic reviews, that have come out. And some of them say they're looking at sensory integration intervention, but they're not. So for instance, uh, Lang et al. in 2012 uh, had a systematic review, sensory integration therapy for autism spectrum disorders. And that was in the research in autism spectrum disorders. And unfortunately, they say they're looking at sensory integration therapy. But the vast majority of the articles that Lang identified were, in fact, sensory strategies. They involved weighted vests, therapy balls, brushing. Um, there were only a couple of articles that uh, actually were um, sensory integration intervention. Okay, So on the face of it, that study by Lang people would pick that up and say, oh, that's, that's sensory integration. Well, guess what? It wasn't sensory integration. And that's where the evaluation of the, uh, the research comes in handy. Now, another article that was done was by Watling and Dietz. That was in 2007. And they looked at the immediate effect of AIRS sensory integration-based uh, occupational therapy intervention on children with autism. And in their study, they really did not find very much um, positive results, but I think the bigger issue with that was uh, poor uh, outcomes. Another study was Devlin um, and all in 2011. They did a study on the comparison of behavioral intervention and sensory integration therapy in the treatment of challenging behaviors in children with autism, and that was in JAD. That Devlin paper also um, said that they're looking at sensory integration therapy when, in fact, most of the interventions were weighted vests and other kinds of sensory um, strategies. Um, one study that um, came out just a couple years ago is by Watling and Hauer. This was part of the evidence-based practice um, efforts by AOTA in children with autism. They did a paper called Effectiveness of Air Sensory Integration and sensory-based interventions for people with autism spectrum disorder. And what Watling and Hauer found was that uh, they actually very appropriately um, separated out ASI interventions from sensory strategies, okay? And they found positive results for ASI. The sensory-based interventions, we're going to talk about that in another talk. Now, um, one last piece of um, literature I want to point out is that um, I and some of my colleagues, um, it will be going in under Schaff, uh, oh, who's the first author? I think the first author on that paper is, um, oh, it'll come to me. Anyways, um, my colleagues and I, we submitted an article to JAD, the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disabilities. And in that paper, what we did is we identified um, two articles, the Schaff et al. RCT 
and the Pfeiffer et al. RCT. And we evaluated those uh, two articles as well as the Iwanaga um, study to determine whether or not they met the criteria um, for an evidence-based practice from the Center for Exceptional Children. Now, there are a number of agencies out there today that um, have criteria or guidelines for whether or not an intervention is considered to be an evidence-based practice. And the CEC, or the Center for um, Exceptional Children, is one of those. So we evaluated those three articles, the Iwanaga, the Schaff, and the Pfeiffer articles, according to the CEC criteria. And the Schaff and the Pfeiffer articles met all of the criteria for an evidence-based practice for ASI intervention, according to the CEC. And then in addition to that, the secondary criteria is how many studies does it take to be considered an evidence-based practice. And the CEC criteria is two well-designed randomized controlled trials, which the Schaff and the Pfeiffer articles meet that criteria. So what our paper argues is that we now have sufficient evidence for um, evidence uh, ASI intervention to be considered an evidence-based practice, specifically with children with autism, and specifically for outcomes around functional skills. Um, both of those studies used goal attainment scaling as their primary outcome, and the goal attainment scaling showed very good um, outcome measures. Okay, so we can now identify air sensory integration as a um, evidence-based practice according to established criteria, at least for children um, with autism. What we need now is to continue to look at um, using meaningful and sensitive outcome measures. We need to be looking at um, doing more intervention studies that the intervention is actually replicable and that it, they use a fidelity measure to ma uh, make sure that it is, in fact, air sensory integration. Okay. So where does all this um, mean? It means that um, we've got that evidence for ASI as an evidence-based practice. Um, when you're looking at studies prior to 2010, um, prior to that time, there was not a fidelity measure for ASI available. So most of the studies that were done prior to that time don't really adequately reflect that they did air sensory integration, so it's very hard to determine whether or not they were in fact doing ASI or not. Another thing that's important to remember is, is that research rigor has changed um, even in the last 10 years. So it's um, quite difficult to apply today's research standards um, to old research. So just because old research doesn't meet today's research standards doesn't mean it may not be appropriate literature for you to be looking at. Um, the evidence around SI, ASI making positive changes in children with learning disabilities is certainly there. Um, it's not as strong as what we currently have for children with autism. It's simply that the uh, research that was done supporting it is older. Um, research on other populations uh, is quite limited, and so we need to be looking at um, additional research um, in those areas. And one of the things we're going to be doing as we go through this series is looking at what uh, research evidence do we have on um, some of these other areas of uh, practice, some of these other populations as well. All right, so um, that brings us then uh, to our time uh, being up. Uh, I will take questions if anyone has questions uh, that they would like to ask. Is there anyone that wants to type in any questions in your chat there? Nope. All right. 
Well, thank you everyone for joining us. I hope you uh, found this interesting and helpful. Um, our time is up. Uh, watch our website and our mailing list for more details. And uh, thank you to our participants for joining us for our live talk. And uh, watch our website, www.thespiralfoundation.org, for our next live talk presentation and to obtain copies of past programs. Um, have a great evening. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.